That may sound trite to you, but I believe a church that God can bless is a church that believes in the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. And that's what we preach here, and I make no apology for it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Revelation, we are in the section of chapters 2 and 3 that look at the messages Jesus has for the pastors of seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week, we began a look at the third church, the one at Pergamum. A few of the churches, including this one, begin with a commendation followed by a rebuke. In the case of Pergamum, their commendation came in the faith they displayed. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy as he looks at the first of those commendations. Now, the Lord commends them in two realms. First, they were loyal to the Lord's person. They were loyal to the Lord's person. Again, in verse 12, And to the angel of the church at Pergamon, right? The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. Twice over in these verses, we are told that Satan's throne is in this city and that Satan dwells in this city. That's an intriguing description where Satan's throne is. And it tells us something about Satan. Number one, he's not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not, uh, he's not omnipotent. He is limited. He is a finite created being, though it seems he has tremendous power, and he does because he has tens of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There are millions of angels, as we will see before we're done with the Revelation. And a third of the millions upon millions upon millions of angels fell and rebelled. And so Satan, he operates in the heavenly realm, but he also operates in the earthly realm. He doesn't have a throne in hell that he's sitting on. He is called in the scripture, the God, small g, of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is that evil fallen being who has millions and millions of demons who work on people. Sometimes one demon just needs to work on one person, and that one person can craft a way of thinking that will cause thousands and thousands and thousands of people to fall. We saw in Daniel chapter 10 that Satan has demons assigned to different countries. He has demons assigned to different cities. So for whatever reason, obviously because these people were so open to his work, he decided at least in the first century to make this his throne. Again, he's a limited finite being. The devil can't have his throne in Buford and be in Dallas at the same time. He can't be in Las Vegas and New York at the same time. He's limited, he's created, but he's very, very organized. And one of the things that he does is through his falsehood, he heals falsely. And so the symbol of the city was Asclepius. He was the mascot of the city. He is the God who supposedly healed, and they had a magnificent temple. This was a city that sits a 1,000 feet above sea level. It has kind of a cone-shaped acropolis, and um, they had this temple there built to this false god, and people would spend the night there. They'd go to the city to dip in the waters, and they said they would be healed, and many, I suppose, were. Again, the devil does miracles. And they would go into the temple of Asclepius, And they would lay on the floor all night and the priests would loose non-poisonous snakes. And if one snake crawled over you and touched you, 
you were supposedly healed. Now, I didn't give you his full name. His full name is Asclepius. You can spell it a few different ways. Soter, S-O-T-E-R. Many of you know the Greek word soter. It means savior. Asclepius, the savior. And so the staff of Asclepius, pictured here, uh, bring it up, there we go, right out of Pergamum, this pole with a snake wrapped around it was the mascot of the city. It's called a caduceus. My dad was an ophthalmologist, a medical doctor, and I can still see his license plate, MD2254. And on the left side was this symbol. It was a symbol of medicine, and doctors in that state were given the privilege to carry that on their license plate. And he loved it during the gas crisis because he could skip the lines and go right up to the front of the line and get a full, full up. We loved it too. Anyway, but it's a, it's a distortion. Just like there's over 270 flood stories, the devil takes God's symbol and he poisons it. Where does it come from? Many of you aren't are new to the Bible, so let me just share by way of review. For the rest of you, bear with me. Numbers 21. Uh, the context was the children of Israel had, had left Egypt. Uh, the end of, um, they're out there in the wilderness, and God is being gracious and good to them and providing for them supernaturally. And Moses says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable bread, you could translate it. The Lord sent fiery or poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord, and you intercede or pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses interceded or prayed for the people. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole, it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the standard, on the pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And of course, this whole brazen serpent illustration or reality becomes an illustration of what Jesus is going to accomplish centuries later. Now, it seems rather strange that God would say, take a snake made out of bronze, set it on a pole. Why up on a pole? Because God cared about his people. 600,000 men, so about 2 million, leave Egypt. A lot of folks. And so it's up high. And if anyone will just believe the promise God made, God said, just look and you will instantly be healed. Now, some thought that was utter foolishness. Others believed. And centuries later, Jesus meets a man by the name of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the Jews, and he tells him of his need to be saved and to help him to understand. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him and the Son of Man and Jesus may have eternal life. God healed the people of Israel anticipating the ultimate healing that he wanted to give by typology. The solution to the serpent program problem was not to make serpent anti-serpent medicine. It was not to pass anti-serpent laws. None of those things. It was not to pretend that the snakes weren't there. The solution was to believe what God said, look and you will live. And anyone who looked, lived. And he said, the Son of Man must, 
must be lifted up. Not by accident. It was planned before the foundations of the world that the Messiah would come and die on a bloody cross, that he'd be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. And then the most quoted verse in all of the Bible, many don't understand the context. The next verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Satan takes this magnificent symbol and he perverts it. Just as uh, Satan gets Catholics to worship at Lord's, And he takes some magnificent things. Mary was a magnificent lady that she would be chosen to carry the Messiah. Sometimes as Protestants, we don't esteem her enough in terms of that God would choose her out of all women born. But we don't worship her. We don't pray to her. And so here was a church in a city where Satan literally decided to set up his throne. And the symbol, the mascot of the city was a serpent on a pole. So Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. That's encouraging. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know what it's like to be there in the city of Pergamum. And Christ knows where you live today. He knows where some of you have a spouse that's abusive. He understands that. He knows where some of you stand out as a sore thumb at work or at school because of your stance for Jesus. He knows the problems and the heartaches that you are going through. And in the midst of this city where Satan had set up his throne, where this church was born, nonetheless, he said, you hold fast my name. These were people who were loyal to the person or the name of Christ, because in Scripture, the name of Jesus or the name of Yahweh designates who he is. And you see that illustrated all the way through Scripture. In Acts 5.41, it says, So they went on their way, the apostles, they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing, why? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They stood up, and they preached Jesus, and they were persecuted for the name of Jesus. Now, had they whispered his name? Had they been very, very quiet about his name? Had the church in Pergamum not stood up and held fast the name of Jesus, there would be no persecution. And some of you, you've never had anything bad said about you. Because you don't talk about Jesus, except to Christians, in safe zones. But you won't talk about Jesus. You're afraid what people might think of you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And understand that the world doesn't like the name of Christ. Unless someone is on their way to Jesus, unless they are not resisting the revelation of God, People will hate you sometimes for the name of Jesus. Listen, the name of Jesus is central to the Bible. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter stood up and said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in the name of Jesus. Jesus taught blessing is found in his name. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Look, I'm glad for our live stream this morning, for mothers who are home with sick kids, for 
elderly invalids who have to be there in their living room to be able to participate. And for other countries of the world, we get a printout every week where people are watching other states that are in different time zones. But if you're here in Buford or Hilton Head and you're home because you're lazy and don't want to get up and you'd rather watch church from your bed than with the saints, you're missing a blessing of God. One, it's selfish because God calls us to encourage one another, to stir one another to love and good deeds. You can't do that from your easy chair at home. But there's a special blessing when God's people come together that is distinctly different, where two or three are gathered. And so there's blessing in the name. There's salvation in the name. There's answered prayer in the name of Jesus. Remember, Peter and John, they meet the man at the gate called Beautiful. And Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. The religious authorities got all bent out of shape over that miracle and the preaching that followed it. And so they said, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer in this name. Why? Because they understood there was authority in the name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They knew there was power in this name. And persecution came for holding fast to their his name. And that's what the church at Pergamum knew. Listen, I love to hear on Wednesday nights when we gather together and to hear our saints pray in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. It's not just something we tack on the end of a prayer. We are acknowledging that we have no righteousness in ourselves, and we are coming to the Father through the Son. Years ago, when I was at Duke University, we not only worked with undergraduates, but the different graduate schools, and I had a Bible study in the Divinity School. Can you imagine that, that you needed a Bible study in the Divinity School, because most of the Divinity School students were lost? It was very, very, very sad what happens there at Duke. But we also started a Bible study in the business school, and for whatever reason, God just blessed it. It just grew and grew, and all these MBA students there in the Fuquay School of Business were coming to Christ. We had about 25 students, and they convinced the dean of the school that at their graduation, they wanted Pastor Carl Brogy to come and preach. Uh, not to preach, but to pray, to do the invocation. And so the dean calls me, and I said, I would be honored to do that. Oh, he said, there's one stipulation. You can't pray in Jesus' name. I know you're an outspoken Christian, but you can't pray in Jesus' name. I said, well, look, I'm not going to deceive you and tell you I won't and then come and do it. But if I can't pray in Jesus' name, I'm not praying. You got the wrong man. You should never be ashamed of Jesus' name. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus' name means that he is Lord, the Savior of the world. And it doesn't matter that people are offended. And these people were loyal to his person. They were loyal to his name. Secondly, they were loyal to his precepts. They were loyal to the Lord's precepts, to his commandments. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. These Christians would not deny the name of the Lord Jesus, nor would they deny the faith of the Lord Jesus. You did not deny my faith. And we are living in a day of compromise where churches want to be politically correct 
And in the process, they compromise Jesus' faith. Look, I am not ashamed this morning that I believe in a Bible that's infallible, inerrant, and absolutely authoritative. I am not ashamed today to say that I believe Jesus was literally born of a virgin, virgin conceived. You say that's impossible. Yes, it is. But God is the God of the impossible. I am not ashamed today to say that I believe the blood of Jesus and only Christ's substitutionary death on the cross can save you. I am not ashamed today to say that he literally, not spiritually, physically actually came out of the grave and that he will literally actually physically come again to judge the living and the dead. Listen, the faith of Jesus is built on the word of God. And I am not ashamed to say that the moral dictates of God has not changed, that homosexuality, adultery, fornication, drunkenness, murder, and any other vile, wicked act you can think of are still wrong and they will be always wrong because God's word is forever settled in heaven. And it may sound trite to you, but I believe a church that God can bless is a church that believes in the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. And that's what we preach here. And I make no apology for it. Now there was a man, there was a man in the church. His name was Antipas. And he didn't care what people thought about him. He wasn't going to budge. And so we read here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Antipas basically said, the faith of the Lord Jesus is my faith. God said it, I believe it, I'm not moving an inch. Many think that he was one of the pastors there in the church. External biblical sources say that, and external biblical sources say that he died and that he was baked and broiled in a large brazen bowl. They said, we're going to kill you. In essence, he said, if you want to kill me, you're going to kill me. But I'm going to be faithful to the faith of Jesus. Church history records just a few years later that there were two stone cutters in the city of Pergamum who refused Diocletian's order to carve out an image of Asclepolos, this snake god. They said, we will not do it. And so they killed those two men because they refused to make the city's mascot. This was Satan's throne. And those two men would rather be loyal to Jesus than to be nice. And really, when you're loyal to Jesus, you're not mean and hateful as some people say I am. You're nice. Because when you tell people the truth, that's the most gracious thing that you can do. But when you begin to twist doctrines, when you begin to uh, reject the clear moral standards of God, then you're the worst, meanest, ugliest person you could be Because when you lower God's standard, which is God's schoolmaster tutor to point you to Jesus, there's, look, if homosexuality is not wrong, I'm okay. If adultery is not wrong, I'm okay. If drunkenness is not wrong, okay. Because there's no standard that convicts me and shows me that I am wrong. And that's an ugly thing to do. So here is his brother, Antipas. I look forward to meeting him in heaven. He was my witness. The faithful witness, Jesus said. By the way, that's the same phrase that's used of Jesus in the first chapter. 
He's the faithful witness. And the word witness is the Greek word martyr. We get our word martyr. You could translate it either way. He's the faithful witness. And in his case, he was also the faithful martyr. So here are some people faithful to the Lord's person, faithful to his precepts, and Jesus commends them for it. Secondly, Christ's word of correction for the church at Pergamum. Not only do they have a word of commendation, they have a word of correction. Let me read verses 14 to 16 so you get the flow and then we'll step through it. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, even though this was a wonderful church, they needed some correction because they had embraced the teachings of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, teaching will influence you. As a man believes, so he will behave. And so the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, repeatedly say that pastors are to teach sound doctrine. The word sound is a medical term from the first century. Healthy doctrine. Because healthy doctrine creates healthy churches and healthy people and healthy families. And so we don't want to teach something that is wrong, that is unhealthy. And you don't want to teach your children or grandchildren. Some of you have grandchildren and you've come and told me and they're living in sin and you're afraid to tell them the truth because might, they might get mad at you. Some of your grandkids are living that way. Speak the truth in love. You say, look, I love you and you can do absolutely nothing to ever make me stop loving you. But God's word is clear. And so what exactly was Balaam all about? Let's talk about it. First, on your outline, they were to repent over the teaching of Balaam. So who is this guy, Balaam? He says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, Balaam was a Gentile. We know that from Scripture. He called himself a prophet of God. God called him a soothsayer. Uh, you might want to go home, just put out in the margin, Numbers 22 through 25, and also Numbers 31. If you read 22 to 25 and you don't read 31, where God gives us divine commentary, you'll miss a lot. Now, we can't deal with those chapters in full this morning, but let me give you kind of a synopsis of them. The children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. The 40 years of wandering was basically over, and the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, recognized that these Israelis were going to come into what they called the promised land. And so he wanted this guy, this prophet, so to speak, Balaam, to curse them. So he sent a pulpit committee to, to Balaam the prophet. He says, Balaam, I'll pay you good money. I just want you to do one thing. Curse the children of Israel. Now remember, Satan has power. And this man must have somehow displayed power in the past that this king would be willing to pay him money for his services. So Balaam inquired of the God of Israel, which was typical for a pagan. Whatever God you're dealing with, you inquire of that God. And many times you get a response back from other gods because behind false gods, the Bible teaches our demons. But on this occasion, the one true God, the God of Israel, responded to Balaam. We read in Numbers 22, 12, and God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, 
for they are blessed. So from the outset, God told Balaam not to help Balak. So at first, Balaam obeyed, and he sends back messengers to the pulpit committee. He says, no, nah, the God of Israel says, I, I can't curse you. I'm sorry. So they send back a new committee of more distinguished people. The beautiful people come. More money. They said, look, we just want you to curse it. He said, hmm, let me pray about this. So he prays about it. You know, sometimes when you resist God long enough, God will say, go ahead and do it. He'll, he'll let you have your way because he won't go against your free will. So he lets him have his way. But in the process, his donkey is stopped on three occasions. Remember, the donkey is scared to death. And he is stopped by the angel of the Lord. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Before he ever took on human flesh in Bethlehem, there's some select times in the Old Testament he shows up, not as an angel, but the angel of Yahweh. He's called God himself. And so Balaam says, what, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm stopping. Why are you hitting me? I've been a good donkey my whole life, and I've served you my whole life. Why are you hurting me? And Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd put it through you right now. And the amazing thing to me is not that God can make a donkey talk. Look, if God can make a parrot talk, he can make your dog talk or anything else he wants to talk. Amazing thing to me is that, that Balaam is talking back to the donkey. But the analogy is clear. Balaam, you're the donkey. You should try to do a good job like your donkey did. And just like I put words in the mouth of the donkey, I'm going to put words in your mouth. So the king gets him. He stands on this ridge where he overlooks the children of Israel. And he goes to curse the children of Israel. And the Spirit of God comes on this unbeliever. And he speaks truth through him. And he can't curse the, king of Israel, the children of Israel. And the king says, what are you doing? I paid you good money. He says, I can't do it. Yahweh won't let me do it, but I've got a prize idea by which you can still pay me. I can get the God of Israel to curse the children of Israel. You get some of those pretty young women from Moab, you send them down there in the camp, and they can put on all their seductivity and the children of Israel will fornicate with those women. And God will curse them. And that's exactly what the king did. And 24,000 Jewish men died that day. And in Numbers 31, when Moses at the end of his life recounts what happened, he says, behold these, referring to the women of Moab, behold these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. And Jesus takes this Old Testament illustration and says here in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching, the counsel of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And by the way, if you've read Numbers 31, God ends up killing this false prophet with a sword. I find that interesting, because here's Jesus with a two-edged sword protruding from his mouth, and he ultimately judges this man by way of type and illustration with a sword. And so what is the counsel of Balaam? What is the teaching of Balaam? It's mixing together the things of God with the things of the world. Error, when mixed with truth, invariably corrupts the truth. 
And this was the error of Balaam, and it was the problem taking place in the church at Pergamum. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy will conclude this message entitled, Satan's Throne, and he'll further explain the danger of mixing truth with error. To listen again to today's message from Revelation chapter 2, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV6. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayerful and financial support of listeners such as yourself. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Satan's Throne. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <laughs>